So we are in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments, um, and so we are glad that you choose to worship with us today. In this series on the Ten Commandments called The Good Life, we are learning how to live in love for God and for others. I think everyone wants the good life, right? I mean, don't you want a good life? I think it's pretty obvious. We want the good life. What's the good life? I want that. Well, remember what we said in previous weeks, that you cannot have the good life without the good news that comes from a good God. And as we study the Ten Commandments, we must remember that. You can follow along with me as I read. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 10. So follow along as I read this, the Word of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. So that's a new thing we're doing, and some of you are like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do there. But as we read God's Word, one of the things we're going to do each week is I'll, after reading it, say, this is the Word of the Lord, and your response will be, thanks be to God. So that we recognize and honor, it's not just what I'm saying, it's God's Word to us, right? Um, And so, it is God's Word. I want to state something that's obvious to you as we uh, get into this. This should be obvious. You are a worshiper. And you might be saying, well, that's why I'm in church. That's good, but that's not exactly what I mean. You are a worshiper. Let let me demonstrate. This is a phrase that I have heard time and time again. The faithful have gathered to see the battle between the hedges, referring to the University of Georgia football. All right? The faithful have gathered between the hedges. Right? Or... Taylor Swift fills stadiums with loyal followers known as Swifties, right? We have stadiums that are filled with people that cheer, that laud glory and honor, that sing together for gods and goddesses of our culture. And and maybe in a more subtle but just a serious way, we might say that there's other gods that we worship, that you and I are worshipers of, Amazon and DoorDash, the goddess of the harvest, get whatever you want right at your door. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever the next thing's going to be, the god of approval that we so eagerly look for. The Dow Jones, the god of security and of wealth, of enough. Or coffee and Adderall, the god of productivity when trying to get life under control. Or alcohol and weed the goddess of calm, when you realize, I can't get life under control. Right? We, you and I are worshipers, and we use things because of what we think they do to give us the desires that we want. And this is true of our hearts because it's the way we're made. We are made to be worshipers. We are created by God to worship. And so, the first commandment was to have no other gods, and the second was not to have any idols. Now, since I want you guys to remember this, I just want some class participation here. Let's say the first two commandments together. You can repeat them after me because we'll, we'll shorten them. 
Have no other gods before me. Do not make any idols. Okay, so if the first commandment is saying who the one true God is, the second commandment is saying how you worship the one true God. And so what we are driving at today is this, to worship the only true God in only His way. That's what's being told to us today. And I want to do that and show you that in three ways. There's three main points. The first one is that God shows us about prescriptive worship. And we see this in verses 8 in the first part of verse 9, which we already read, but let me read it to you again. When he says, you shall make for your, not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below, that should sound familiar from the language of Genesis when God creates the world. Creates all this stuff, right? Nothing in the world you're supposed to use uh, as to worship. And you shall not bow down to them or worship them, right? And so this is what God is saying. He is prohibiting false worship or idolatry and prescribing the right kind of worship. The whole book of Leviticus is about the priesthood and how they're supposed to do exactly, precisely the thing that God tells them to do, but nothing else, as they come to worship God. Idolatry, then, is a broad thing, but today I want to think about it in two ways that I think come out of this text. One is this, that idolatry is imagining God in ways he has not revealed himself, or it can also be making an image of God. So let's talk about those two ways in terms of the prohibition of idolatry. Imagining God in your way. How has God revealed himself? How are we supposed to think of God? Well, we know how God's revealed himself because he's done so using the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And he's revealed himself to us uh, through Scriptures and through the Son of God. But, But some don't like what the Bible says, or maybe they don't understand it. Some pastors even don't like it, and they're like, I don't know, that's the God of the Old Testament, this is God of the New Testament. I don't like that one so much, you know. I like the gentle, kind, forgiving Jesus, but, but you know, that's, that's who Jesus is, and I, I don't like when there's other parts that I don't like. But then we forget that, like, Jesus got angry and flipped over tables and drove people out of the temple when they were selling things for prices and so forth. We forget that, that Jesus told the Pharisees that they were to be cursed for misleading people. One of the things that we have to be very careful of that this commandment is telling us is that we don't get to imagine God in our way the way we want to. We take God the way he actually is, who he is, how he exists. Adam and Eve chose not to listen to God's words and instead listened to another voice in the Garden of Eden telling them what, that they could do whatever they wanted. To be their own gods, basically. They didn't trust the word that was given to them by God and instead did what they wanted to do. And that's how it all went wrong. Not believing God's word is how it went wrong. And what we need to do to not have any idols means we must trust in his revelation, in his word, and in Christ. So the inspired word in the incarnate Christ. I was uh, talking to a high school student uh, a couple of summers ago on a mission trip. And we were debating an issue, a theological issue. Um, and as we were talking about this, it was a friendly debate, and I referenced a Bible verse. And he said to me something like this, well, I wish it wasn't written that way. I'd prefer to think of it in this way. And I stopped walking right there in the street and looked him in the face and said, we can debate this all you want, but your desire to win the argument has made you just undermine the very thing you're trying to uphold. 
You're committing a heresy here, throwing away God's word so that you can win the argument. So you can't do that. You don't get to imagine God the way you want him to be. You have to take it for what it is. So we can't just imagine God however we want him to be. We need to understand who he is as he has revealed himself to us. But secondly, we can't just make up images of God either. We don't make up an image of God through which we worship God or through which we connect to him to secure his blessings. No carved images. Why does he say, why is this command no carved images? We're given a hint in Deuteronomy chapter 4, right before this in verses 15 and 16. We can put those on the screen. He says, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. That's the mountain where they met and God descended on fire and he gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, you didn't see any form. You didn't see me. You don't need an image of me. You need to listen to me. You need to do what I'm telling you to do. You need to understand who I am. But you don't need to see me. Can you think of a time in which Israel made a carved image? So, Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Um, They come to the mountain, Mount Horeb, or also called Sinai in the Bible. And there, they meet God, where he descends, and speaks in a loud voice that they all hear, but they don't see him. And he presents to Moses the Ten Commandments. And what happens right after that when Moses comes down the mountain? They have fashioned a golden calf. They took all the jewelry of the people and they made a golden calf, this idol to worship. And what Aaron says to them is that here is your God who brought you out of Egypt. The reason that is important is while they think Moses isn't going to make it off the mountain and he's probably died, and they craft this image, they weren't trying to find a new God per se. They were like, God's brought us out, but Moses is gone, so probably we need to find another way to connect to him. And they make this idol, this carved image, through which they think they're going to connect to God. And God gets angry and sends a plague on the people. Now, they know where plagues come from, right? They just experienced 10 of those in Egypt that came upon the Egyptians and yet not on them. Now they're getting one. And Moses pleads with God to have mercy on them. But we'll pause on that and we'll come back to that later. So there's a carved image. They're not to make a carved image because they haven't seen God. They're supposed to listen to his voice, to listen to his word. And now they're making a carved image. What about the New Testament? What does Jesus say about this? Consider when Jesus meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And she says... Well, hey, you know, and, and he says, hey, and he says, why don't you, uh, you know, get your husband and I'll, and I'll tell you about this living water. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know, you've got five. She's like, how'd you know that? And um, he's like, because I'm Jesus. And, and so she sidetracks the conversation and talks about worship and says, well, where do you worship? Because we worship on that mountain. And Jesus' answer to her is basically, the mountain where you worship doesn't matter. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Right? It's not through the place. It's not through that connection. It's not through some idol we have. It's to worship in spirit and in truth of who God is. And this is what Jesus is upholding. Now, that's really quick on that, but there's lots of questions that come out of that. Some practical questions. Like, 
like you may read this and you go, well, you're saying we just got to do whatever's in the Bible and, and um, you know, that's, we just got to take it for what it is. Then um, are we allowed to have art? Because it says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. We've got all kinds of images around us. We've got walls. We've got a piano that's carved. We've got a pulpit that's carved out of wood. Are we breaking this commandment? What about when I go to an art gallery? Are we breaking a commandment then because we're in this art gallery and seeing everything that's there? No, we're not. God is not against art. In fact, he commands them to make the temple in such ways and to fashion it with fabrics and things and, and to make the Ark of the Covenant and to make all these different things. Craftsmanship, artistry is not bad. God is not prohibiting that. What God is prohibiting is creating those things and then worshiping those things. That's his point. He says, don't create those so that you bow down to worship these. That, you don't do that, no. Okay, maybe that's obvious. What about this question? Can we have pictures of Jesus? I will tell you that's a debated question. Um, is having a picture of Jesus creating an idol? It's a debated question, and um, our catechisms of our church say that you should have no pictures of Jesus at all. But there's different views even within our church, within our denomination on that. And, and so... I think there's a little bit more nuance to that than, than that, and I differ with that slightly. I think it's clear that this command restricts the creation of such images with the purpose to depict the transcendent God and somehow to comprehend him, which we cannot fully do through a picture, right? A picture's not reality. It's only pointing to something that's greater and real, right? When I go on vacation and I take a picture of these mountain sceneries and I show it to you and you're like, yeah, it's cool. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. It was so much better in person because a picture can't capture the reality of it, right? And so we cannot, we should not um, create, try to create an image of Jesus to capture his reality, to say this is exactly what Jesus looked like. We should not um, create an image of Jesus in order to worship that image. It's not the real thing. It's only an image. We certainly shouldn't bow down to it or serve it, seek some kind of blessing through it. So in that sense, no, we shouldn't have pictures of Jesus. We must not create an image of Jesus, Jesus that is to be worshipped. We only worship the real thing. We live by faith and not by sight, right? We don't, this is one of the reasons why we don't have Jesus on the cross, where we don't have pictures of Jesus in the sanctuary. Because we're not trying to get you to look at this picture or this image of Jesus and go, oh yes, I somehow connect and feel that. That's not what we're striving for. We also must not try to create an image of Jesus so that we know exactly what he looks like. Well, I just want to know what he looks like. If he would just show up, then I would know, right? That's what we all would like. But this is saying, no, you don't need that image. I think about this. All through the pages of the New Testament... The apostles write these stories about Jesus, right? How many times do they tell you what Jesus looked like? Maybe he had, he had a robe. He took off his outer garment. We know he had clothes. Do we know what color eyes he had? How long his hair was? Do we what kind of shoes he wore or sandals? We don't know that. They don't tell us. This is what Jesus looked like. But they knew what he looked like, right? What they do tell us, page after page after page after page, is what Jesus did. This 
is who he is and how he loves people. This is what he came to do. And that's what's important for us that we need to remember, that they tell us exactly the, uh, what to do, or what Jesus did and how we should uh, respond in that way. Again, with images of Jesus, I think we, so we should not do those things. I think we can use images of Jesus. Please listen carefully what I'm going to say and what I'm not saying. I think we can use images of Jesus for the purpose of teaching about what Jesus did in the stories of the Gospels. In doing so, what we were doing is showing the value of the incarnation that God took on human flesh and lived and dwelt among us. We must neither deny the deity of Jesus nor his humanity. And so when we use pictures, we're not trying to create a perfect picture of saying this is what Jesus looked like, but to say Jesus really came and lived in the flesh. And when we use those for like children's story Bibles and curriculums, they may contain images like that. Those are for our instruction to understand the story and what Jesus did. They're not for our worship, to worship him. That makes sense. And so that's why in Sunday school curriculum and stuff, we'll have stories and that are telling the story of Jesus. And there'll be Jesus walking in his disciples following him. Because that's what followers do. They follow the person of Jesus. Not just some idea about Jesus. Not just, he wasn't just this like ghostly thing. No, he came in the flesh. And even as I say all this, I need to issue you a warning to be very careful. Do not allow yourself to think of Jesus and of God through these images. When I was growing up, those images were flannel graph. Kids, you don't know what that is. Picture, picture a sheet or something like that and some sticky fabric sticking to it. Animation, that was what we, Tom and Jerry did that on TV, but um, we didn't have that in our Sunday school classes. We had like popsicle sticks and flannel graph. But you have different things too. But the point is, in whatever it is that you're seeing, those are not the things through which you are to say, that's how I know God. You know God by his word and the stories that have been told to us and passed down and, and, got, and recorded in the scriptures. We don't need that, that medium. I'm sorry, I don't know why my microphone's popping so much. We don't need that medium in order to connect to God. You don't need the story Bible. You don't need a painting in the Louvre. You don't need that image to connect to God. You might say, okay, I get that. There are some subtle ways which I think we do this. Let me give you an example. A medium is like a, like a talisman, like, like something through which you connect and you get the power of the thing that it connects you to, right? And so I have seen this when I was in the Dominican Republic with kids wearing voodoo necklaces, thinking that it tapped to the power of the gods to protect them and give them health, except for that they were extremely malnourished and unhealthy. And when the necklace was cut off, the child immediately went into a seizure because of the spiritual power that was real. And when it was destroyed and the child prayed over, the seizure stopped. It's like a talisman, like a medium to connect. Let me just take it to another level. I have a friend in high school, and my friend, uh, he was Catholic. His name was PJ, and we were walking out in Florida to the beach, and this one place where we had to go to the beach, we had to go over a long boardwalk over Mangrove Swamp in order to get out to this beach. And we're walking out there, and uh, on the way out, his necklace came off, 
It broke with a charm of St. Anthony on it, and it fell below the boardwalk down into the mangroves. It's like, oh no, I lost my necklace. That's St. Anthony. He's the patron saint of lost things. I gotta find this. My mom's gonna kill me. And I'm like, you don't see the irony in this, do you? That the thing that you cling to for lost things is lost. What about you? Maybe you have a necklace with a cross on it. Do you find yourself rubbing that and thinking like somehow if I just do this enough that I connect to God? Do you find yourself staring at the cross on the wall behind me? Thinking, oh, that, that's through that is my, my medium, my talisman to connect to the power of God. That's not what those things do. It's not how we should use them. If we're doing that, we are in some ways approaching violation of or violating the second commandment of having an image through which we think we connect to God that God has not designed for us to connect to him through. Why is there such a strong warning against this? I mean, who cares? God cares. Why does he care about this? Because all these are different attempts to access God in a way to get his blessing. In other words, all these things are ways that you think you can connect to God to get his blessing, which in other ways we talk about is to get his benefits, to get his redemption, to get his salvation. And if you start using those images to connect to God through which you think you get his blessing or his salvation, you are starting to mess a lot with redemption. Because what does God tell us about that? There's only one way to get that, right? There's only one way to which you get redemption. There's only one conduit through which you can be saved, right? The Sunday school answer here, who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one mediator, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5. The only mediator through which we can get the blessing of God. When we make other images, we are trying to find ways to connect that God says, no, this is not how you're supposed to do this. It's not the right way. It's only through Jesus. But, how do you, but you may still ask, but, okay, but how do I connect to Jesus? Well, God does give us ways to do that. How do we connect to God? Ways that he's prescribed for us. We pray. He says, pray, talk to me. Because I'm the God of the revealed word. Talk to me. I will hear your prayers. Jesus teaches us to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, the Lord's Prayer. And so we are supposed to pray and pray in Jesus' name, as he says in John 14. Ask it in my name. In other words, we're not praying to saints. We're not praying through tangible things we can hold or touch. We're praying directly to Jesus. You don't have to come through me as your pastor to get prayers to God. Thank the Lord. Think how restricted you would be on getting, getting your prayers to God. You can pray directly to God. But it's not just through prayer. The other way that we have means to connect, to know God and know about Jesus is through his word that he has given us. He says, listen to my word. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament, read it, trust it, obey it. Another thing, sacraments. Jesus instituted sacraments of baptism and communion and he instructed us to do those things because those are meant to show us something about him. So if we're going to say we get some kind of images, they're going to only be the ones that God's given us. And the ones that he's given us are baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
And maybe there's one other way which you can connect to God, and that would be through other Christians. But it's not through them. It's only that when you are so discouraged and you're so down, you're like, I don't think I can go on. And you don't have the energy to pray. You don't want to go to open your Bible. You don't want to get to church where the sacraments are, that a friend comes to you, a Christian friend, and says, you know what? I will pray with you and for you. I will read the word to you. I will go to church with you where we can take the sacraments together. And in that way, they're connecting you through God's appointed means to say, this is how you know me. This is how you know me. And that's why God cares so much. He's showing us the prescription for worship. But God is also showing us the punishment for idolatry. And here's where we get to maybe the hard words in verses, the second half of verse 9. The punishment for idolatry in that second half, he says, For I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Like, whoa, what? What does that mean? Let me be clear. God is not punishing kids for something that they did not do. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 10, it goes on and it talks about how God will repay people directly to their face. Meaning, he will directly deal with people if they go against him. And in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20, I think I have that verse. Yeah, it says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So, is God's word contradicting itself? And the answer to that is no, it's, he's not contradicting himself. What is being said in this commandment is that for up to four generations of those who hate me, not innocent, of those who hate me, will continue suffering effects of the sin of the parents that get passed down from generation to generation. They say, what do you mean they get passed down? I mean, look in the mirror, people. My kids are like me. They're loud like me. They're obnoxious like me at times. Right? You parents, you're the biggest influence on your kids. You pass the good things down and the bad things. It's the way we are. Some things kids are like, yeah, I'm not doing what my mom and dad did in that way, and they run the other direction, and, you know, they do other stuff. So it's not identical, but we learn from our parents. And so, yes, are there sins that are carried on that we learn from one another? Yeah, there are. I mean, we know this in society all the time, right? We know that alcohol abuse tends to run in families. We see abusive parents and what that does to children and how they're affected by that. Do sins matter? Do they, care? Do they have an effect to the next generation? Absolutely they do. But what God is saying is that they're not innocent. It's of those who hate me, right? Notice that, that that's in the commandment there. And notice what he's saying about hate. He's saying, hate me. Wait, this is in the second commandment about idolatry. He's saying, if you have idols, it's like you're hating me. Because you like images of me rather than the real me. You can't worship a fake God. You need the real thing. And he also says that he's a jealous God. That he's jealous for his treasured possession. And you think of jealousy, maybe like I think of jealousy. Man, I'm having a hard time with this thing today. 
um, you think of jealousy, maybe like I think of jealousy, and that's when like somebody does something and then we're, we're getting mad at him and angry because we're jealous and we're like, well, it shouldn't have been that way. I wish I had it or I wanted that. And, and we get kind of like grumpy and have a fit, like a little angry elf. And, um, and we shouldn't do that. And we're like, well, is that what God's doing? The word jealousy here for what God is doing is not that kind of word. It's he's jealous for something that he rightly possesses and owns. And remember what he has told his people is that you are my treasured possession. I am jealous for you. It's romantic language. He's saying, I love you. I love you, my people. I am jealous for you. Jealous. A jealous lover when another has committed adultery. God will not be shared like a mistress. He won't share his glory. And he's saying, I am jealous when you chase after other lovers in your idols. Because those are not me. Let's go back to that story of the calf a little bit. Remember, getting the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai was like a wedding ceremony in which God says to Israel, I'm coming after you. I'm preparing a place and I'm going to come and take you from the place you're living in Egypt out of slavery and I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to bring you home to live with me to the promised land. And on the way, now that I've pulled you out, we're coming together and we're going to have this wedding ceremony. And as we have this wedding ceremony and all the witnesses are gathered, we meet on the mountain where I show up and I descend and you're there before me and we're going to exchange vows, the Ten Commandments. And God says, I will be faithful and these are the vows that you are to take to me, that you be faithful to me. And that's what they do. They have this wedding ceremony. And yet Moses is gone for 40 days and the people think, ah, he must not have made it. He's probably died of hunger or fell in a crack of the rock or something and stuck and maybe a mountain lion got him or maybe God got tired of him and killed him. Who knows, but Moses isn't coming back. And so they make the golden calf. And we're told in Exodus 32, 19 and 20 about this golden calf in which Moses is so furious when he comes down the mountain. He's so furious with their idolatry. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in, into the fire and then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. Now, what is going on here? Um, a few things. First of all, their party that they were having in the revelry is the language of um, a pagan orgy. Um, so they're partying and they're doing their thing in front of the golden calf and Moses comes down like, what is going on? And he's so mad that he smashes the Ten Commandments. It'll be like taking off the wedding ring and just throwing it at him. Like, I thought we just got married. What is going on? The party's not even over and you're already cheating with the rest of the wedding party. And then he takes the idol and melts it down and grinds it up into powder and makes him drink it. Is that just because he's mad and, like, drink it? It's, it's actually, we don't have time to go into this, but it's actually a test. Um, you can read about it in another place in the Old Testament for an unfaithful wife. It's a weird thing, I know, but if somebody suspected his wife was unfaithful, he could go to the priest and say, I think this is what's going on. The priest would make this mixture and the wife would drink it. And if she got sick from it, then it would be proof that she had committed adultery. Sometimes she did, sometimes she didn't. It's kind of weird, I get that. But understand it for the point of the story. When, God, when Moses comes and says, you're going to drink this, 
what they all know is that you are now taking the test to see if you've been unfaithful. And then they get a plague. Which means they know they've been found guilty of adultery. Which means God has the right to divorce them. And so he gives this severe warning about idolatry because it's running away from God in the wrong way. But even as he gives that severe warning, it comes with an encouraging promise, the promise of lasting love in verse 10. This is the third point, the promise of lasting love, verse 10. And here he goes on to finish that, and he says, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The beauty of mercy is that that the cycle can be broken, that the sins of the father and mother that are carried on and that we learn and keep doing, they don't have to stay that way. That can be broken. God's mercy interrupts the story. It says, oh, these sins that carry on for a little while are nothing compared to the length of my love that is forever, for thousands of generations. Moses pleads with God with that golden calf on behalf of Israel and in chapter 32, verse 13, and it says this. It says, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and give your descendants this land to be their inheritance forever. What does Moses say to God when God is like, I have the right to divorce them? He said, but God, you promised. You didn't fail. You promised. And God keeps his promise. And so he does not divorce them. When Moses wants to know, when he has to lead the people forward, into, toward the promised land and leads them in repentance and he wants to know and he wants to be like, God, but what do you like? I want to see you. What does God do? He says, you cannot see me. You don't get this image of me. But I'll stuff you in the crack of the rock or the mountain, Moses, and I'll walk by and as I pass by, you can see all of my goodness. We see this in, in Exodus 34, 6 where God is saying, I am the one who loves you and I am proclaiming the heart of the jealous husband for the people I love. He passes in front of Moses and says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's who he is. You know what we do? We are quick to anger and slow to love. And God is slow to anger and quick to love. He is the God who meets us in this way. We, this is the God we know. This is the God who we love. This is the one whom we belong to. Who the vows have been made. And why idolatry is not God, is not good. This is the God who has won us back and says, now keep my commandments. It's not just Old Testament language. Jesus says the same thing in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, Keep my commands. Jesus doesn't say, if you love me, you will imagine my face and stare into my eyes. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. Listen to my word. Follow me. Oh, you'll trip. You'll fall. You'll fall off the side. You'll walk the wrong way. But the only one you can come home to is the God who for thousands of generations will be faithful to you, won't dump you, but will say, come home, come to me. 
So we don't worship images of God. We all want to know what he looks like. But we're told to trust his word. He's holy. He is to be feared with honor and reverence. He is faithful. He is the God who is gracious and abounding in steadfast love to win you back. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis kind of addresses this sort of, but who is God and what is he like? He addresses it when Susan and Lucy are going with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to meet Aslan for the first time. And they're very curious and quite nervous, says Susan, to meet Aslan because she wonders what he is like. And Mrs. Beaver says, well, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, then they're either braver than most or else just silly. Hearing this, Lucy said, oh, then, then he isn't safe? Mr. Beaver chimes in, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that good king, Aslan, then lays down his life for them, taking the curse from the witch, cracking the stone tablet, and returning to life, saying that the witch didn't realize the power of the curse, that even death itself has turned backwards. You see, Christians, this is what we have. We don't need idols of God. We've got the real God, the living God, who came and lived and died and lives again for you and for me. Your takeaway this week is to pray, to seek God and ask God to grant you the faith to see his heart for you, the heart of the lover who's pursuing the one who is lost. And your prayer to be, Lord, help me to see your commands as loving direction for the good life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that you will help us to, to see this in your word. There's so much in there, but we do pray that you will help us to understand and know, to believe, to hear your word, and to follow in your ways. We pray that you will, as, as we seek you and as we seek Jesus, that you will show yourself to us more clearly, not in images, but in who you are, your character, in what you do for us, the way you love us and forgive us, the way you pursue us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.